As we get started today, I just want to remind you that we are in the final week of this series of messages on the Old Testament book of Esther. I hope you've been enjoying the series as much as I have enjoyed preaching it. I learned so much in my preparation, studying this great story, and I hope that you have learned some great life lessons from Esther as well. Next week, you'll be hearing from our new co-pastor, Reverend Debbie Thomas. Pastor Debbie and her family have settled into the DeWitt community, and she has already been working with our staff and we are excited to have her as part of the ministry team here at Redeemer. In preparation for this last message, let me recap the theme of the book of Esther. The book of Esther is all about God working behind the scenes. We don't always see God at work. We might not even think he could be in the picture, so to speak. But as we have seen each week through this story, we find God's influence over and over in each chapter and in each part of this story. Now, as I review the story, I thought we'd try something a a bit fun today. But first, let me tell you about Michael. Michael is a Jewish follower of Jesus. He tells the story that in Judaism, uh, they commemorate the events that took place in the book of Esther each year during the Feast of Purim. And in his experience, they read the entire book. And whenever the evil villain Haman is mentioned, everyone in the audience boos. And whenever the name Mordecai is mentioned, everyone cheers. So you can do that at home today if you wish, if it helps to brighten up listening to this week's message. The events in the book of Esther are named after a young Jewish girl living in Persia, which is present-day Iran, about 475 B.C. Esther, through a series of strange and even uh, unseemly events, becomes queen of Persia during the reign of Xerxes. The book describes how God saved the Jewish people living in Persia from a genocidal maniac, the evil villain named Haman. Now Haman manipulates the king into signing a law, giving anyone in the kingdom the right to kill and to plunder from any Jew living in Persia on a certain upcoming date on the calendar. The goal was to rid Persia of all Jewish influence. Last week we read how God reversed all of the evil Haman's plans. One night as the king couldn't sleep, he asked one of the attendants to read from the record of his reign. And Xerxes was reminded of a Jewish man named Mordecai who once foiled an assassination plot. And Xerxes discovered to his chagrin that he never properly rewarded Mordecai for his courage. Now at that moment, it just so happened that the evil villain, Haman, was walking in to see the king, and the king tells Haman to reward Mordecai by parading him through the streets, wearing the king's robes, and riding the king's horse, announcing that this is what happens to the person who the king delights in. Now, it gets worse for Haman. The next night at a banquet, the queen reveals her true identity, and that her very life is in danger from Haman's Uh, evil plot to exterminate all the Jewish people in the empire. Haman is then executed by the king. 
And the king elevates Mordecai to his new second in command. The man who raised uh, Esther after her parents died when she was very young. Now that took us to the end of chapter 7. We called Esther the book of great reversals. And last week we also talked about the fact that the greatest reversal that ever occurred on our behalf was when Jesus died on the cross. He took the death that we deserve because of our sin and he offers us life in its place. In this great reversal we get to exchange our guilt for Jesus' innocence. We go from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. We go from being far from God to being a child of God. This great reversal is ours for the taking through our faith in Jesus, who died to bring us life. Last week, we read every word of three whole chapters of Esther. Today, we aren't going to read any of it. You can read the last three chapters of Esther today if you'd like. You'll discover that Xerxes gives Mordecai the permission to alert the Jews and allow them to defend themselves. So the day comes and some of Haman's followers go ahead and attack the Jews anyway, uh, but they are killed for their efforts and the Jewish people are saved. Today as we wrap up this series and reflect on what we've learned from Esther, I'd like to propose that the book of Esther teaches us an important truth, that the presence and providence of God can lead us to a confident and a courageous life. Now the presence of God means that God is near, and providence of God means that God is always working behind the scenes to bring about his purposes. God didn't just wind up this world and is now sitting on his hands watching how it plays out. He is active in the lives of his people, people like you and me, and he is weaving a divine tapestry where all things come together to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the lives of others. God is near and he's good and he's working life out together for the good of his people. Esther, in the Old Testament story that illustrates uh, the New Testament verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, says to us, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, sometimes it seems that people who are experiencing difficulty in their life say, hey, don't tell me that verse. I don't want to hear that God is going to make something good come out of what's happening in my life right now. The pain is just too great. But I would like to challenge us to think about this verse as good news. And it should be especially good news when we are in those times of stress and difficulty. When all else, uh, what else would be good news for us? It's more than a theory. This verse is meant to bring us to a place where we can stand up under whatever burden we're carrying with confidence and with courage. Esther teaches us that God can make sense out of our seemingly senseless acts in life. So let's start by talking about how the presence of God leads us to a confident and courageous life. And then we'll talk a little bit about the providence of God. We live in a world that is saturated with the presence of God, even though it may be difficult to see at times. 
This world is filled with the presence of a brilliant God who cherishes every single person on this earth. Some people think of God as living far away. Doesn't God live in the heavens? Isn't uh, heaven a place where people float on the clouds and play the harp all day? You know, isn't heaven like, you know, a place where there's big gates and streets of gold and St. Peter's there managing the long line at the door? Well, maybe that's not exactly what heaven will be like. The Bible often refers to the God who occupies the heavens. And to a first century person, that meant the atmosphere, the sky, the stars. God is everywhere. Psalm 139 was a psalm or a song written by Israel's greatest king, a man by the name of David. Psalm 139 is all about the presence of God. I invite you to listen closely to its message. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. <clears throat> if I ride the wings of the morning, <clears throat> if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. How appropriate that we celebrate the fact that it was God who made us. Even in our mother's womb, God was there knitting us together to make us who we are. You know, let me detour from Esther for just a moment. Sometimes holidays like Mother's Day or Father's Day, which we just celebrated, can be a difficult time for a number of reasons. Some people who uh, have parents who are not exactly exemplary parents. They might have been bad people, either neglectful or abusive or narcissistic, and we wonder, why did God give me the parents that he gave me? Why couldn't I have been born to a better set of parents? Why would God want me to honor my parents? Well, there are a variety of reasons, but the biggest is because our parents had the exact DNA that God wanted in order to create us exactly the way God wanted us to be. You and I are not an accident. Our parents might not have planned for us, but God did. There might be parents who became parents by accident, but we are no accident. God wanted to create each of us as a unique and beautiful work of art, and God decided that our parents had what he wanted to make that happen. There might be illegitimate parents in the world, but there are no illegitimate children. And not all parents are good parents. Not all parents are skilled parents. But the deal is that God was more interested in creating the person that we are 
with the potential that we have than in someone's parenting skills. See, it's God who created us, who has plans for us, who quite literally stitched our DNA together in order to make us perfectly us. He was present with us in the womb, and he is as close to us right now as the breath that we breathe. We live in a world that is saturated with the presence of God, but the real question is, is God with us? What I mean is, there's a difference between God's presence and God being with us. He's present in the room, and the Bible says he's mine and I am his, but is God with us day in and day out? In Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew writes that the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy made 700 years before Jesus was born, uh, that a virgin would be with child and his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Do you know how unusual it is to have a religion founded on the idea that God likes us and wants to be with us? When you look at humankind and how it was created in the minds of the Greeks and Romans and the Persians, usually the story is that the gods created humans because they wanted someone to do their work. They created us to be servants. Hey, go get some food. Bring this to me or that to me. They believed that the gods looked at humanity as playthings, as entertainment. But the God we read about in the Bible created us so that, we, he, so that he could be with us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He created us to be with him as his friends, not servants, not playthings. The God of the Bible is totally unique. However, as the Bible tells us, we humans weren't all that interested in walking with God. The theme song of humanity from the earliest days of creation was, I'll do it my way. So we stiff-armed God and rebelled against him. We introduced sin into the world, and that created a barrier between God and us, a barrier that a just God simply could not overlook. He needed to do away with our sin in order that we might be able to be with him again. And so Jesus paid the price to get rid of the barrier of our sin in the great reversal, Jesus paid the debt for us, and now he offers us an invitation to place our faith in him. Nothing stands in our way of walking with God. But the invitation goes both ways. Jesus invites us to become his apprentice, to walk alongside him and learn from him how to live life in this kind of world. But there also needs to be a point in our life when we invite Jesus to walk alongside of us, when we give him permission to govern our life. At some point, we have to relinquish control. And it has to be total surrender of our life, and then we have to invite Jesus to take the reins of our life and lead us. We call that crossing the line of faith. And when we think highly enough of Jesus to trust him, with control of our life, then something wonderful happens. God is not just present, he is with us. And everything changes. We are promised that God will be with us always to the end of the age. We will never walk alone, 
but we must first accept that invitation. Jan and I have now lost all four parents. Some of you also are in that stage of life or have been for a while. It's a different feeling when your parents are gone, isn't it? We now realize that we're the next generation. We are the grandparent generation with a responsibility to be an influence for good in the family. But even though our parents are gone, thank God, we are never alone. We have a heavenly father who's looking after us, tending to us, caring for us with every bit as much love as our parents ever did. And through faith in Jesus, we are assured of God's presence with us and in us. He will never, ever leave us. We can live life confident that God is our shepherd leading and guiding us each and every day. Now let's talk for a moment about the second word, the providence of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, the providence of God means that even when we can't figure out what's happening, God is at work behind the scenes working all things together for the good of his people. As we read the book of Esther, we don't know God is at work until the last few chapters of this story. In chapters 1 through 4, it would appear that God is completely absent from the scene. It appears that the evil Xerxes is the one who's in charge, stealing Esther from a normal life and forcing her into his harem. It would appear that the powerful ones are in charge, like the prideful Haman, plotting death and destruction to God's people. And where is God in chapters 1, 2, 3, or 4? He appears completely absent from the scene. It's not until chapter 8 that we can see very clearly what God was up to all along. It's not until chapter 8 that we begin to see the series of coincidences that uh, had, not had they not occurred would have led to a wholesale slaughter of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. We don't know God is at work in chapter 1 until we come to chapter 8. In chapter 1, Xerxes gets drunk, and had, had he not gotten drunk, he probably would not have issued a degrading command to his wife Vashti to come and entertain the boys with her beauty. Vashti wouldn't, wouldn't have embarrassed him, and he never would have had a reason to find a new wife. Esther never would have been in a place of position or authority and power to do what she did, and Jewish people across Persia may well have been slaughtered. It's not until chapter 8 that we realize that God was providentially working all the way back to chapter, in chapter 1. And some of us need to be reminded of that today. Some of us right now are in chapters 1, 2, or 3 of our life, or some life circumstance. And maybe we're in chapter 4 where it feels like the world is collapsing around us. Things are a mess in our life and we're not sure God is even seeing us because it appear, he appears to be absent from the scene. Here's my word of encouragement to you today. Hang on. Hold on. Chapter 8 is coming. Esther teaches us that the providence of God is at work even now. God is at work in your situation. God is always working, even if he's hard to spot. Nothing escapes his notice. 
And if you've placed your faith in him, then be assured that God is working all things together for good. Nothing can frustrate God's plan or purpose. You might be in chapter 4, but hang on, chapter 5 is coming. Because when you see what God is up to, you're going to be amazed. Let me say this as well. There might be a parent or two in this congregation today who have kids who are just going bonkers right now. They're making decisions that are breaking your heart. And so today is hard for you because you might be tempted to sit around and ask, where did I go wrong? What if I had not done this or that? Can I just say your kid has many chapters in their life yet to be written to? They might be in chapter one and they might have to uh, get through a few more dark chapters before things start turning in a new direction. What can you do? Simply trust God with your kids. You know, I love baptizing young children. We baptize them because our intention is to release them into God's care and then do our best as parents to raise them the best we know how. But at the end of the day, we submit all of our efforts to God. And we admit to him that we are trusting him to write the chapters of our kids' lives. But that's faith. We think highly enough of Jesus to say, you take them from here. They were yours. You were with them in the womb. And I'm trusting that you will do all that's necessary now to bring them safely home. See, the providence of God means that God is always working behind the scenes. And he's able to connect the dots that don't often appear to be connectable. I have a Google Maps application on my phone. I type in my destination and the phone suggests... Make a left in 300 feet. Well, what happens if I blow past that destination? The GPS recalculates. Make a U-turn. Well, what if I ignore it again? In one mile, make a left. It recalibrates the route, but the destination always remains the same. All that to say the providence of God makes God the great recalibrator of life. We might have made a hundred wrong turns in life, but God has us here today, and he's extending an invitation to us. I invite you to let him walk with you each and every day. Let him teach you a new way of living, not a religious way of living, but a loving way of living. See, the presence of God and the providence of God, they offer us a new way to live life. In a world filled with challenges, we get to live with confidence since we know that God is with us and there is nothing that can stand against us. Christ followers live in confident assurance that God, though not the creator of evil and sin is a powerful and lo is loving enough to somehow use those things to accomplish his purposes. We live with confidence and we live with courage. We fear nothing. Even when walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil 
because God is with us and he comforts us and he guides us and he provides for us. And one day he will welcome us home to be with him. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that no problem we face in our life, in the church or in the local community or even the nation, is too difficult for you. You are the God of the impossible. Thank you for this book of Esther and the many spiritual truths and life principles we can learn from its pages. Thank you that you do have a perfect plan for us and nothing can change or destroy your plan to redeem us and put us in a right relationship with you through our faith in your son, Jesus. Remind us also today that you call each of us for such a time as this to stand fast against the evils of our day. Thank you that even when we fail and find ourselves overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, your grace is sufficient and can abound towards all of your people. Thank you that we have everything we need for a life of godliness so that we are enabled to abound into every good work for your praise and your glory alone. Use us, we pray, in this place where you have planted us for your holy name's sake. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.